Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. It's Jack Rico, and thanks for listening to episode 43 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. If you are a first-time listener to this U.S. Latino pop culture show... Thank you for discovering us, and please share the show with your friends. All right, before we talk about our guests on this week's episode, I want to talk to you about briefly about that New York Times interview with president of MTV Chris McCarthy, where he announced this week that TRL is coming back. What does this mean? Um, well, so far, they're building the studio, so it looks like it's a reality. They're building a gigantic studio, and I know because uh, I used to be on VH1's Big Morning Buzz, and um, the stage that we used was the TRL Studios, and every time I walked in there, I will not lie to you, watching the buses pass by, feeling like Carson Daly, waving at the kids and everything... It is something indelible. It is something singular. It's something that is a part of time. It's like you, you're time traveling back to the mid-90s where the show made superstars of Britney Spears and Sing, the Backstreet Boys, and so many others that used to go there. They're the ones, TRL was the one that set the tone, set the agenda for culture news in this country. And that's the way I always thought MTV should be. Um, so TRL Total Request Live hosted by Carson Daly began in 1998 and was canceled in 2008 due to, uh, the changing habits in music. Uh, MTV itself was going through a bit of an identity crisis, but now they're back. And if they're going to be back and be successful, there's an opportunity that Chris McCarthy, if you're listening, you need to take advantage of. And that is the Latino music opportunity. If you're going to create TRL again, imagine having not only hip hop, not only rock, not only pop music of the day, but imagine having Latin music. Imagine having J Balvin's Mi Gente. Imagine him performing on TRL, Times Square at the TRL studios. Imagine Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee, Nicky Jam, Osuna. Imagine all these guys appearing, singing in Spanish with their reggaeton flavor uh, being exposed to the whole world. That is the opportunity that this new TRL cannot miss. It'll be great if you have a Latino or a Latino VJ. That'll be excellent. But it's the music that's going to make a difference. It's going to separate you from the pack. It's going to make you unique. Um, but it's also going to bring together all of youth. I'm not sure if you know this, guys, but the youngest demographic in the United States are Hispanics, are Latino kids. Latino kids should be the ones jam-packing that studio every single day. It's 
the Latinos that are watching the most amount of YouTube videos and their Latino Spanish music videos. Those are the guys that are competing, that are rivaling the best of the best of pop mainstream music. And so having a TRL without the Latin videos in your top 10 countdown, without performances, without these guys singing in Spanish, then Chris McCarthy, you're missing the biggest opportunity to, be, to make this show successful. With that said, guys, on the program this week, we talk about HBO and its controversial new slave series, Confederate, with the creator of the Oscar So White hashtag, April Rain. Uh, she and four other women have now created the No Confederate hashtag campaign to boycott the show. Now, the question is, will HBO succumb to the social media pressure? Also, Venezuela has spun into utter chaos. I'm not sure if you guys have been reading the newspapers this week, but they're literally rewriting the Constitution. And not only that, the United States now have imposed these financial sanctions that could cripple it for good. Rafael Bernal, reporter for The Hill Latino, joins me to discuss how these sanctions will affect gas prices in the United States and if Venezuela will ever regain its prosperity. And if you're interested in knowing what to watch this month, I had a chance to visit the Today Show uh, this week with my August preview of what to see in theaters and on TV. So keep your headphones on. This is the Highly Relevant Podcast. On the phone with me right now is Rafael Bernal. He's a reporter for The Hill Latino. Uh, he covers Latino matters for the journal. And uh, Rafael, how long have you been at The Hill? been there just over a year and a half covering uh, Latino issues. And it's fascinating. You know, and we, we have this, uh, this area that's uh, hemispheric affairs is included in Latino issues. Tell me a little bit about how The, the, the Hill uh, began and how long have you been involved in politics for? Well, I've, I've been involved in politics in one way or another for, I hate to say it, age myself, but for about 20 years. But in American politics, in D.C., I've been involved for about five years. Um, the Hill is, is, a, is, like you said, a journal that covers, covers Capitol Hill issues, as the, as the name would indicate. Uh, it's, it, and it's, it's grown a lot in the past two years. We have mm -hmm. a very powerful social media presence. Uh, we're yeah, that's how I as, discovered you guys. Yeah, we, we have the fourth most, uh, most followed and most powerful, according to a study by MIT, a Twitter handle uh, among media properties in the United States. That's all media properties. And how did the Hill Latino come to be? Well, that project has been has been around for about a year and a half, as long as mm -hmm. I've been there. Um, it was an in-house project that that the Hill decided that was going to be important during that time. You have to think back to the 2016 campaign. Um, clearly, the the Latino uh, voting bloc was was going to be important no matter who won. And that prediction turned out to be true. Um, it, with, the, with the 2016 election, it, it turned out to be important in, in a you know, very interesting way. And, and I've been covering, essentially, I, I remember starting and covering Donald Trump and, and his growth <laughs> and, and, and thinking, well, where, where does this put the Latino space? And frankly, it's made it more important than ever. Uh, I mean, Trump's victory made, made the Latino space more important than ever because it's certainly a, a growth area in politics. And, and it's not going anywhere, but it's, it's become more difficult for a lot of Latino leaders 
to to engage the federal government and that sort of conflict it's what makes for interesting news no absolutely and uh you know it's interesting i have after the after trump got elected on november 8th of 2016 i didn't really know where we as a hispanic community in the united states stood are we democrats are we mostly republicans uh I don't feel we have a voice anymore. I feel like Bob Menendez was one of the leaders of the Hispanic community, at least in Washington, D.C., at least one of the more visible persons. And then he got involved in some controversial uh, news headlines. Um, Where do you see Latinos today in politics in Washington, D.C., and how much power do you think we have right now? Well, I mean, as a demographic, Latinos are growing, as you know it, as you know, and and that that is very unlikely to stop or even slow down. So that, that demographic power is, is finally reaching a point that it's translating into political power. Now, it's still a lot less representation than, than one would expect. The Latinos represent about 17% of the U.S. population, and it's speaking strictly about Latino uh, U.S. Uh, nationals represent about 17% of the population, and they represent about 7% of Congress. So, so while it is growing, it is still an underrepresented community. Uh, some argue that it's under attack. Some argue that you know it's 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 not necessarily under attack. There are, there are a lot of Latino Republicans, and not just in South Florida, where traditionally, you know, Cuban Americans have sided with the Republican Party for historical reasons. But the truth is, there are a lot of Latino communities that are very conservative in their in their social structures and and it, it's been said within the republican parties that that latinos are naturally republicans if only the party would welcome them right um now i'm i'm not sure how how true that is because there is also a very large progressive latino uh group and especially represented in california you have regional structures that that really change the way Latinos engage in politics and view politics. Are we mostly Democrats or Republicans right now in this country as a community? Overwhelmingly Democratic. Okay, because that, 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 that's not no the way it felt on November eighth. <laughs> well, I, there there is there is some debate over over those numbers that came out in those exit polls. Um, you have the exit poll that said thirty five percent or thirty percent of Latinos voted for Trump, and you have the Latino decisions poll that really looked into in detail in, into Latino communities about how people voted, and they're saying it was maybe 18%. Mm. Now, I've talked to, to the folks at Pew Research who, who aren't, um, they're very nonpartisan, and their answer was the numbers need to be crunched. There, there are no exact numbers because, you know, voting is secret by, by its own nature. But the, they say the number is probably somewhere in the middle there. So um, when you have, let's, let's say, 75%, if, if a key demographic represents, represents 75% support for one party, I would say it's, it's fair to say that's overwhelmingly democratic. Uh, there's an article that you wrote recently called Treasury Sanctions Venezuela President Over Elections. Can you take me through what's been going on? Just give me a brief summary of what's been going on from the beginning after Hugo Chavez died all the way to now and how these sanctions finally came to be. So that's interesting. I'll, I'll go five years back first and then go back the 20 years to, to when Hugo Chavez became a president. 
in the last five years, I think the best way to describe Venezuela has been it's, it's like watching a slow motion train wreck. <laughs> and there have been there's been talk of when the Maduro regime, regime would finally crumble, when Venezuela would finally explode. And of course, I, I haven't heard talk, thankfully, of anybody who wants, you know, the, the situation to be further aggravated. But their economic fundamentals are not healthy by any standards. Their the reliance on, on oil and, and Cuban security, most would argue, is not sustainable. And politically, the opposition has been quashed. But, it, but you asked a really good question. What happens if you go 20 years back? Well, 19 years back, Hugo Chavez won elections, fair and democratic elections in 1998, took power in 1999. The first thing he started doing was rebuilding the country's constitution to give himself more power. That's uh, one of the insane. things that happened. That's insane. I mean, it, Bloomberg did that in New York where he got a third term and that was considered just ridiculous, but we all felt we needed it at the moment. And so there was a consensus from the residents of New York to vote him in for a third term. For me to have heard that this is happening in Latin America, I'm Colombian, so this is our neighbor, Venezuela. For me to hear that, it, it seems like out of a movie, somebody trying to rewrite the Constitution. It's a very typical uh, recourse that, that, um, that leaders in Latin America have, have gone to, uh, arguing generally that, that the democratic institutions that, that exist are designed by those in power, like that meta-power, and oligarchy, usually that, that word is thrown around a lot, and, and they rebuild the government in such a way that they can exercise more power. One of the key things is interesting because Chavez turned the, the country's parliament into a unicameral national assembly. And he was very good at controlling it for, for a long time. And then elections in 2015, Maduro lost those parliamentary elections. And, and the opposition took, took control of, of the unicameral parliament that Chavez had designed to work hand in hand with the executive. Um, and Maduro tried to limit its power through the Supreme Court and eventually uh, was not able to do that. And this election that he held uh, last Sunday to essentially select a new constitutional assembly to write a completely new constitution, that was, that was the way that he, I mean, he fundamentally stripped the opposition of whatever power it had remaining. And in this process, now the sanctions by the Donald Trump administration finally kicked in. Uh, can you tell me what the sanctions are and how is this affecting the relationships between the United States and Venezuela? So the, the sanctions essentially were uh, the, a week prior, the, the Trump administration announced sanctions on 13 Venezuelan officials who were going to participate in these elections. Sanctions are essentially through the Treasury Department. Uh, any any assets they have that fall within American jurisdiction are immediately frozen, and U.S. nationals are prohibited from doing business with these people. Mm-hmm. A week later, the the, uh, the election was held, or a few days later, the election was held, and and then the same sanctions were slapped on Maduro himself. The effect they'll have is still unclear. We we don't know 
if that if those sanctions will be enough to stabilize uh, destabilize the regime without hurting the people even more, uh, which is always a target of sanctions, frankly. And this is this is something probably the most agreed upon bipartisan measure that's been taken in Washington. I would argue in the last six months and in the Trump administration, this is one thing both sides agree on the extent to where they'll take further sanctions. There's a little bit of division because of course, Maduro depends on his oil revenue to just to fund his government and to, to keep, keep things running. Um, if, if oil sanctions are levied, it's very likely that his government will be destabilized, but there is a, a group of, uh, of, of Democratic congressmen who are not by any standards Maduro supporters mm-hmm. who say that those oil sanctions would do more harm to the Venezuelan population than, than would be worth it for the benefit of destabilizing the Maduro regime. And then, of course, you get into like how much the United States wants to get involved in the internal politics of the Latin American country, given the shaky history that that, that sort of intervention has had in the past. I think that gas prices are going to go up in the next year. Now, as I understand it, Venezuela still is the largest provider of oil in the world. Well, they are, they are a major oil producer. That There's no question about that. And they, they give uh, cheap oil to... To regional rivals like Cuba and Nicaragua, uh, a lot of U.S. allies in the region have sort of doubled down on on being on the same side as the United States for their own purposes. Of course, but you have Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and Chile mm-hmm. who form the Pacific Alliance, who are the more um, economically the more free trade, open markets minded com- uh, countries in the in the region up to now, and they've they don't approve of what's going on in Venezuela and have levied their own sanctions. And it is true. The price of oil is, isn't, is a factor that has to be taken into, into account both for the, for the internal politics of the United States, because if an embargo raises oil prices, people are, people never like seeing prices going up at the pump. That's, that's just the reality of American politics, but also how far can Venezuela be pushed? Uh, Maduro supposedly has already said, I'm not backing down from you, Trump. I don't care what you do. I will not back down to the United States. So uh, there is a bit of a stare down that occurred this week. And I'm very curious in knowing how Trump's going to handle that. I I happen to think he, he doesn't even care about Venezuela. Uh, You know, he's so caught up in the inner circle and the insular politics that's happening with his own universe within the White House that Venezuela is very far in his mind uh, on, on what to do. So it'll be interesting to see how much Rex Tillerson influences how much the United States should be involved with Venezuela. Venezuela is certainly not a tier one issue and probably never will be. Latin America in general gets pushed to a, to a second degree of importance in U.S. politics. But it was revealing to see uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and, and National Security Advisor McMaster go out in a, in a White House uh, press conference this, this week, or last week, pardon me, um, and, uh, and, and, and discuss, discuss the issue and give it some importance. It's, it's going to be important 
it's not going to be a make or break issue for the Trump administration or any other administration. But but what everybody wants to avoid is a full blown humanitarian crisis. And definitely the United States can handle having a Latin American country that's not within its sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. But but Maduro's behavior could become more problematic. And then there is, of course, the the side of it that the United States has sanctioned the vice president, Tarek al for for activities related to the drug trade. And that's, that's an area that hasn't been fully researched. It's obviously yeah. you know, yeah. the, the Venezuelan government isn't very open about it. And they deny having a connection to the drug trade, trade of course. But they are allegedly, uh, especially uh, there's a lot of allegations that the that Venezuelan military is very deeply involved in the drug trade. And that has oh a my God. potential to destabilize the region. And that's where the Colombians are, of course, not happy because they're, the Colombians are finally cleaning house with their, with their peace process. Mm-hmm, with the FARC. They don't... They don't with with the FARC, and they don't need uh, a neighbor that's um, bringing in more instability. I absolutely agree. And uh, the last word, Rafael, where do you see Venezuela in the next five years? Is this going to be the status quo? Is it finally going to become, once again, the beautiful Venezuela that we all remember? Or, or is this going to be, you know, the FARC sort of... Uh, unrest for the next 20, 30 years? Well, given given the fact that Venezuela watchers have been saying for years that this had to end soon, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really, you know, gamble, put a wager on, on what's going to happen. But the, the situation is, as it stands, is unsustainable. Uh, the, the street protests will either intensify or... I don't think they will end voluntarily. So the government might take a harder line and that might force the region and the United States to react more aggressively. And, and it's, it's definitely a very dangerous situation. And it's especially a dangerous situation for the Venezuelan people. I wish them, I wish them peace and love. Uh, it's unfortunate to see Venezuela as a failed state at this moment. Um, you know, I can't believe that I've seen it in my lifetime. Um, and I know a lot of Venezuelan friends, you know, especially in Florida and Miami. Um, and, it, it truly is, uh, a very sorrowful, you know, moment in, in Latin American politics and, and history. So hopefully, you know, things get better. Rafael Bernal, thank you so much. I know you're in Mexico right now. You're on assignment. Uh, thank you for being here. Rafael Bernal is a reporter for The Hill. Uh, read his article. It's, it's really good. It kind of really details out everything that's been going on with Venezuela and these sanctions. It's uh, titled Treasury Sanctions Venezuela President Over Election. Rafael, thank you for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. It's time for Jack Dick. <laughs> In TV news, MTV's TRL reboot will be hosted by five VGs, including social media star Liza Kashi. NBC is plotting Miami Vice reboot from Vin Diesel. Former Yankee, now Fox Sports commentator Alex Rodriguez is on the cover of this week's Hollywood Reporter magazine. Netflix will release a new Mexican series called Diablero, streaming in 2018, and the CW will be doing a Dynasty reboot. Switching over to music, the Dominican Republic's Festival Presidente announced their lineup for this year, and it's insane. 
Insane, Ricky Martin, J Balvin, Maluma, Carlos Vives, Nicky Jam, Juan Luis Guerra, We Seen, and Justin Timberlake will headline. Gloria Stefan will be one of the next Kennedy Center honorees taking place December 3rd on CBS. And Romeo Santos's manager, Johnny Marines, has stepped down as president of Rock Nation Latino. In digital and social media news, Apple TV gets live TV and DVR courtesy of the Plex app. Facebook will show fewer links to slow loading websites. Twitter is struggling to add users. Instagram turned one year old this week and comedian Aziz Ansari has completely quit the internet. Also, happy birthday to Oscar-nominated Mexican actor Demian Bichid, who turns 54 this week. I'm delighted to have once again on the show April Rain. She's known to many as the woman who diversified Hollywood with the Oscar So White hashtag. And now she has a new fight in her hands with HBO in a new slave series called Confederate. She's looking to have the show canceled before it even airs through a new hashtag called No Confederate. Will it work? I talked to April now on the podcast. Hi, April. Thank you for having me. HBO announced two weeks ago that they greenlit a new show from Game of Thrones creators David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Uh, It's called Confederate. uh, And this show reimagines slavery as a modern-day institution. Uh, When did this info get to you, and what was your immediate reaction? My immediate reaction was disbelief, um, and, and I learned about it, as I learn about most things, on social media. So I, I saw the press release on Twitter, um, and my reaction was visceral. You know, why, 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 why? <laughs> why would you, why do you think this is a good idea? Why do you think now is the best time to do it? Why do you think these are the best people to tell the story? Why do you think we need this story? There's so many questions. Did you ever get any of those questions answered? No. I mean, you know, I haven't talked to anybody at HBO. I haven't talked to Benioff and White. What was the strategy that you used for social media to make hashtag no confederates trend number one in the United States and number two in the world? Right. So there there are five of us that are running this campaign. Um, Myself, Rebecca Theodore, Jamie Broadnax, who is the founder of Black Girl Nerds, um, Chanel Little, and Lauren Warren. Um, last Thursday, we came together as a group privately on, on Twitter uh, through DMs and said, you know, everybody's <laughs> talking about this issue um, individually. You know, Roxane Gay had a wonderful New York Times op-ed, um, you know, and, and there were lots of people talking about it. But we wanted to have a strategic and targeted effort. Uh, so we decided on the hashtag. And what we said is um, we're going to announce Friday morning. And the plan is that on Sunday night, during Game of Thrones, very intentionally, we want no Confederate to trend nationally. That was the goal. Yeah, that, that was that's something wanted. you you wanted to do, but whether that was the reality, uh, did that cause any fear in you that maybe it would not take no. off? No, no, we, I don't do fear. <laughs> no, um, you know because uh, you know I have a strong social media platform. Jamie has even more followers than I do, actually. So. Yeah, these are devoted people to the cause, right? Well, right, but it wasn't even that, because obviously it's not just our followers who um, were talking about Confederate, but we could tell, um, you know, that it was in the zeitgeist and that there were enough people objecting to it. What happened was something that kind of shook Twitter, 
you know, during uh, Sunday Game of Thrones when this was uh, launched and it got the attention of the head executives over at HBO. Um, but what do you have to say to those who argue that you might be being too sensitive, that it's just a TV show, no one's really being harmed, why are you taking this so seriously? Um, HBO is really known to back their their creators. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think they're going to be backing down for making the show at all. Uh, ultimately, what is your mission? I know it's to boycott it, but do you think you'll succeed doing it? Yes. Why? Because um, in three days, we were able to galvanize the power of social media uh, to the tune of a hashtag trending nationally, number one for over an hour. Um, both in the Eastern time zone and, again, in the Pacific time zone, because we did it twice, and number two in the world. We had people from as far away as Pakistan, um, Japan, and Singapore wow. tweeting about no confederate. We also had um, a significant number of people who said to us, I didn't even have Twitter before Sunday night. I joined this social media platform specifically to lodge my objection about confederate. And we had HBO responding, as you mentioned, um, to the campaign that was just three days old. So if we can do that, if we can show the power of social media and how significant the objection is to this show, mm -hmm. just imagine what we can do with a year's worth of time and organization, um, because this show won't even go into production until late 2018 or even 2019. I was reading in the USA Today that Amazon kind of created a counter programming to what uh, HBO was doing with Confederate called Black America. And this one imagines former slaves in the South where the South is seceding and uh, they kind of take over and America or white America declines while the African-American community in the show uh, sort of rises. Um, are these the type of shows that you want to see personally on TV or, or in film? I want to see um, stories in which people from traditionally underrepresented communities thrive. Uh, and, and so Black America... Much like Queen Sugar. Sure. Uh, so Black America, which is going to be produced by Will Packer, um, it sounds like it's going to be one of those shows. Now, to be clear, this show has been in development since last year, and it was actually announced um, in January of this year. It's just that um, perhaps... Um, Confederate and then our No Confederate campaign accelerated when Amazon provided more details. So this, you know, obviously shows don't happen, you know, within two days time. Um, but I, but I'm excited for the show because, um, it's actually rare when we see black and brown people thriving in this country on air. Um, and it's not shown enough on screen. And so I'm confident that based on Will Packer's previous track record, um, the crew behind the camera will be much more inclusive than we've seen from Game of Thrones, which is yet another issue. If people would like to join in the cause, April, and join you with the hashtag No Confederate, what do they need to do? Well, anybody that's interested in joining the No Confederate campaign can just speak out for themselves. Use the hashtag No Confederate and say why they object to this particular show. You know, I'm, I'm not putting any words in anyone's mouth, um, but we are also going to have a campaign again this Sunday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 
Um, so if you're on social media, regardless of whether you're watching Game of Thrones or not, just use the no Confederate hashtag when you're discussing things on social media, whether that be the weather or what you have for dinner or whether you're live seeing the show. April Rain, hashtag no Confederate. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know you're very busy and uh, for taking some time out to talk to us about this, which is a very important topic. Thank you so much for having me. Before we move on to our August movie and TV preview, here are some new songs you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Unforgettable, Latin remix, French Montana featuring J Rolling, Calvin Harris featuring Future and Khalid. I got millions on my mind, and you didn't fit the picture, so I guess you want the vibe. Gran Ciudad, Barzo Remix, Debbie Nova. Well, it's finally August, and that means new movies and TV shows. I visited the Today Show this week and talked about a little something for every taste. Jack Rico is editor-in-chief of showbizcafe.com and host of the highly relevant podcast. Jack, good morning. Good morning, Always oh, so to nice see to have you here. So yes. let's start off with the newest comedy. Yes, Fun Mom Dinner. Have you ladies had a chance to see the trailer for this? No. All right, so uh, basically it's 16 oh, Candles Meets oh, Bad Moms. Uh, <laughs> and it's about four women that go on a mom's night out and basically the night ends up becoming a disastrous but an unforgettable night. Uh, it stars Tony Collette, Molly Shannon, Adam Scott, Paul Rudd, amongst others. Uh, and one of the key things about this film in particular that stands out is that it's an all-female crew. The director, Alethea Jones, uh, the writer is Julie Rudd, who is Paul Rudd's wife, and the producer is Naomi Scott, which is Adam Scott's wife. So a lot of girl power here. It's something you rarely see in Hollywood today in movies. Therapeutic to watch. Okay, so let's go on the other end of the spectrum if oh, you yeah. want to I guess go in the other direction uh, Stephen King's The Dark Tower was turned into a movie yes so uh, this is based on a series of books by Stephen King uh, and it's a classic tale of good and evil and a dark tower that holds the universe together it stars Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey uh, and according to Rolling Stone magazine this is one of those projects that has taken about a decade just to make uh, but it's considered to be one of Stephen King's masterpiece stories so if you're a big Stephen King fan, this is the movie to watch. And uh, let's talk about something for the whole family. Right, Leap. Uh, so if you like animated movies for the whole family, this one carries a great message. It's about pursuing your dreams to the fullest. And it's about a young little girl who wishes to go to Paris to become a dancer. Um, and it has a great soundtrack, too. It's voiced by Elle Fanning, Nat Wolf, Mel Brooks, Kate McKinnon. And on the soundtrack, it's Demi Lovato, Sia, and uh, Carly Rae Jones. Nice. This looks like something I want to see, like, now. Yeah. <laughs> I can go by myself. Uh, we have one. A, a, this one is um, a TV movie from our sister. Network sci fi, and it includes 
from what I'm hearing, our very own Al Roker. That's right. right. Sharknado returns for the fifth movie <laughs> oh, the in the franchise. The fifth movie in the franchise. Can you believe that? Uh, it starts Ian Shearing, Tara Reid, and our own Al Roker is in the. I feel like he's been in the Sharknado before. I know. This yeah. Is his thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely his thing. Uh, this time around, uh, our heroes. Um, uh, have to go and travel all around the world to save their son who's trapped inside a Sharknado. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's talk about Ray Donovan. He's coming back this month. That's right. This is America's favorite problem fixer for the rich and famous. Uh, this time around, Susan Sarandon is joining the cast, uh -oh. which is very cool. And according to Lee Schreiber, uh, this season is going to be an absolute shocker, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with Susan Sarandon's character. Yeah. Is it true? America says may not wait to have uh, for the weekend in order to get their weekend update next month. Is that... Yeah, so What's SNL for since 2008 has been doing these weekend updates sort right. of editions, uh, and they've been going pretty well. Uh, so this summer, there's a summer edition. It's going to be four weekly half-hour ah. shows, uh, and I'm sure they're going to be talking about everything, yeah. especially what's happening in Washington with a lot of sarcasm. <laughs> Plenty of material. Comedy bite, yeah, for it. So Colin Jost and Michael Che awesome. are going to be angry. Jack, thank you so much. Hey, so before we wrap up the show, uh, I stumbled upon this TED Talk with Univision's news anchor Jorge Ramos, uh, and he talked about why journalists have an obligation to challenge power. Now, the TED Talk is in Spanish, but listen to Ramos explain why, in certain circumstances, he believes that journalists have to take sides. Para terminar, yo sé que estos son momentos muy difíciles para ser inmigrante y periodista, pero ahora más que nunca. Se necesitan periodistas que estén dispuestos a, en un momento dado, dejar a un lado la neutralidad. Personalmente, siento que me he preparado para este momento toda mi vida. Cuando me censuraron a los 24 años, aprendí que la neutralidad, el miedo y el silencio muchas veces te convierten en cómplice de crímenes, de abusos y de injusticias. Y ser cómplice del poder nunca es buen periodismo. Ahora, a los 59 años de edad, solo espero tener un poquito del valor y de la claridad mental que tuve a los 24 años y así nunca más quedarme callado. Muchas gracias. That's it for episode 43 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank April Rain and Rafael Bernal from The Hill Latino for stopping by the show this week. And thank you guys for taking the time out to listen from your favorite streaming platform wherever you may be. Special shout out to Spotify listeners. Much, much love. Thanks for supporting. Also, if you like this U.S. Latino podcast, please share it on your social media apps. Tell your friends about it. Write a review and see if you can have them subscribe to the show. It depends on you guys to get the word out. Hope you enjoy your weekend and stay connected with us via showbizcafe.com. See you next week on another episode of Hi. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.